you have to take a bit of a risk sometimes. Have the confidence to start and be brave enough to start. And it does require a bit of bravery in that your job is to empower and enable, unblock, help your team succeed in understanding and solving the problem. Welcome to episode six of season four of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we speak to Tom Loosemore, who is a partner at Public Digital Limited, an organisation we're big fans of. They help clients from the public and private sectors to adapt to the internet era. Tom has also held roles at the Government Digital Service and at the Co-op, and is co-author of the book Digital Transformation at Scale, a new edition of which came out this year. So please stay tuned to the end of the podcast where we will share how you can win a copy signed by Tom. That's digital royalty. <laughs> and I wonder whether we'll ever get to a point where organisations don't need help with adapting to the internet era. I guess it's good for both of us if they don't. Pretty much standard for us to have a business, a feasible business going forward, I would say. Before we get to our interview with Tom, end of the year at polls and reports are in, Zoe. Spotify last week released Spotify Wrapped, which I always look forward to. Mine was once again a year of female artists, more or less. Japanese Breakfast, Wolf Alice, which is at least one quarter female. And Kelly Lee Owens is, is top of my, or top my top three. Are you a Spotify subscriber? Do you look out for that? Oh, do you know, I'm ashamed to say that I actually don't use Spotify that often. I tend to flip between that and iTunes, embarrassingly. So it sounds like you were looking forward to this a bit more than than I was. Well, every year it's a little big brotherish, but it's really clever use of data. I think they put together a little video. I can even share it with you, Zoe, so you can see my highlights. But they put together a little video and they did put one together for our podcast, which I will share with you. No way. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, we have more subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so it's not a wonderful summary of our efforts over the last couple of years, but it's certainly good. But yeah, do you have a favourite artist, most played artist of the year off Spotify? Oh, it's, it's got to be, oh, on all channels, it's got to be the Bicep album. That was the thing that got me through the most recent lockdown in January earlier this year. I think I just played that album on repeat just constantly. It's the soundtrack to Q1 of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I listened to that one a lot. And Kelly Lee Owen's album actually is a nice bedfellow with that album. They both sort of sit in the same in the same vibe, I would say. And anyway, the one that I've listened to most in the last few weeks is the uh, the Low album. I've always been a big fan of Low. They've been going about 30, 30 years or so. But this one is very I'm not sure whether it's a compliment or not, but I find it really good to work to. It's got that right measure of tunefulness and white noise that is brilliant for working. So I wholly recommend if you're trying to get work done, you need a bit of concentration. The new low album, Hey What, is a, is a very good one to, to go for. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Thank you. At uh, least and... I'm misremembering. It might be called Hey What. I'm pretty sure it's called Hey What. <laughs> So speaking of music, one thing that caught my eye over the last week is we've started watching the Beatles documentary, which I know that you've also seen some of also. And the thing that really struck me was what a brilliant example of collaboration it was, because effectively it's about the Beatles doing a sprint to pull together the songs for their Let It Be album. 
over the course of a fortnight, which is just extraordinary. Very calmly, you see them work out all these ideas for songs and coming up with this amazing creative output. And what I really noticed when I was watching it is the very pure sense of collaboration that they all have between them, albeit with some obvious tensions and some differences of opinion. And what I thought was really interesting about it, so often when you and I have seen collaboration in practice, it feels like there's always someone in the room who's talking and there are other people who are listening, but perhaps there aren't that many people who are doing both of those things. And it felt like that most of them in the group were doing that. And largely the group was a place of safety where people could come up with ideas together. So I think this is a really good film to watch if you're interested in what collaboration looks like, particularly in this age of hybrid working, where the intention is that more people's offices will be used as in a collaborative space. But what does collaboration actually look like? What is success? We were just saying before this, it's quite a daunting task, isn't it, to sit down and watch all six hours. But what I have seen so far is quite fascinating and quite meditative. I think it's one of those things that you can put on in the not necessarily in the background. I think you have to you have to watch it. But we found that when we were watching it, we were we were discussing it, or we were watching it. You know, if you're watching a drama, you kind of keep quiet and you keep your thoughts to yourself until the end or the ad breaks. But with this, it was kind of watching their process and and quite apart from anything, just absolutely stunning that the footage exists. Are we just joking that, you know, if, if it existed today, it's bands that recorded albums over the lockdown, over, over Zoom calls and various different things, phoning in their parts of the songs from all parts of, of the globe. It would exist, but it would be in a very, very, very different format. So I'm going to sit down and enjoy the rest. Does that make Yoko Ono the scrum master, do you think? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Yes, establishing those priorities yeah absolutely yeah and keeping everyone on task definitely but yeah in that spirit we're including a link in the show notes about what the documentary could teach you about collaboration it's a really interesting article in the huffington post and if you're interested to know more about what we can learn from musicians in that area too there is a previous episode of the podcast where we interviewed michael hendricks who's the co-author of two beats ahead where he talks about what we can learn from musicians like beyonce and pharrell williams and david bowie so we'll pop the link to that in the show notes also yep and uh, in my end of year poll of business books that is still number one because the only one i've read all the way through actually so i can't i can't very well put something above it that i haven't read all the way through but i was very very taken with that book anyway away from music google this week released its annual search report and i'm glad to see that the age old issue of whether a jaffa cake is a cake or a biscuit is so high up the list of of searches the euros was apparently the most searched for term and unsurprisingly a lot of questions starting with when were related to questions about coronavirus when does lockdown end when can I get the vaccine? When do schools reopen? When does Love Island start? There are a couple of stories that caught our attention, though. Zoe, any insight on your search use this this year? Anything that you've been particularly interested in following or searching for? Mainly where to buy fidget toys, because my daughter has been building up a very large collection of them during this year. Yeah, and I said I joked on Twitter, but actually I think it's probably true that my key phrase of the year is cloak, because every time cloak with an E because every single time I go to make anything new, I Google the search term cloak and then the, the product because Felicity Cloak's column on for The Guardian on how to cook or how to bake the perfect dot, dot, dot is probably one of the most useful life hacks I can ever share with you. Also on wired.com, there was a write-up on what will work look like in 2022. 
And there are a number of different things highlighted in there from hybrid working and how that will look differently, the death of hustle and the rise of looking after yourself in the workplace. And interesting stuff around um, addressing proximity bias, which is how, you know, one longer term concern about remote working benefiting those who are in the office and not those who are actually remote working at home. And then the promise at the end of virtual meetings will get better and shorter. Zoe, did you read that report? I did. And I particularly like the fact that they talked about how remote working skills, and that's not just being able to use the tools, but being able to achieve better results with the tools is going to become much more of a priority in development and also recruitment as well. So it's it's not enough now just to be able to run a remote meeting. You need to be able to run an effective remote meeting where you make the right decisions everyone feels involved and you're then able to, to take that forward to some really good outcomes. So I think that's that's really good because as you and I have talked about many times on previous episodes, it feels like there's a bit of an element of busy work to remote work. And if we aren't doing these things in a productive way where people can see that the outputs are useful and the experience is, is enjoyable, then people are going to be asking why they're, why they're doing this. Yeah. And I think that echoes the main takeaway that I had, which was that idea of moving away from traditional hours to nonlinear hours, which I think is is vital to getting this working well and working properly. Because, you know, I've, I've lost count of the amount of people and friends that we've been talking to over the course of the year, this year in particular, even more so than last year, who were just exhausted by the sort of the never ending we don't stop, we keep going and we keep going into the evening and we keep going in the evening and we work at the weekends just to, to try and get through. So I think um, looking at uh, businesses that are setting aside time for things like learning and training and other activities that help their employees to move away from the screen and sort of doing that screen-based application-based work or sort of work in front of a screen towards actually doing something that's more beneficial to them and uh, overall to their mental well-being, their personal development. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's all pretty positive. And virtual meetings getting better and shorter. But the big question, I guess, on everyone's lips is, does that mean that podcasts will get shorter? And this one won't if we carry on in this vein. We may need uh, to do something about that, but anyway. We might need to. And one thing that we hope to see less of in 2022 will be people losing their jobs through financial instability. But something we definitely don't want to see is people being fired online. And this comes after the boss of US mortgage firm Better.com fired 900 staff on a Zoom call last week, which is not a good look. He used the line, if you're on this call, you're part of the unlucky group that's being laid off, which is uh, a dreadful message to be sending. So this is Vishal Garg, who's the chief executive of the firm, broke the news to staff on the call and then faced the obvious repercussions when, and I don't know how he even missed this one, that it would ever happen. Somebody um, uploaded the video to social media. And then the rest of the world saw it. So I don't know. I, I wonder whether this is, you know, I know people in public sector organisations who have had to resort to video calls to let people go, particularly in the first wave of the pandemic. But it was always one to one and it was always done with hopefully with the, the, with the greatest respect and, and as, as you know, much as you can over these, these channels. But Zoe, I wondered, is this clumsy and badly thought out or is it symptomatic of a world at work that's still getting used to existing predominantly online? Is this a leadership issue? Did he just not think this one through? It's terrible. I mean, it's just appalling that any leader would behave in this way. Where is the compassion? Where is the emotional intelligence that's needed to navigate a situation like this? 
and giving him the benefit of the doubt such as we can in this situation I wonder whether he's one of these people who sees digital communication as a very transactional thing because if he had brought those 900 employees into say a a large of reception area in the office would he have said to them you're the unlucky group that's going to be fired Mm. so perhaps that is one of the things that leaders need to think about where you're having these very difficult conversations with people if you wouldn't say it face to face why would you say it that way on zoom yep and he's going to struggle with that on his cv i would imagine who's going to want to work for a leader like that and who's going to want to join a business if he starts another business or if he makes this one work who's going to want to join that business in in the long term so a real case of shooting oneself in the foot exactly and just imagine what it's done to the reputation of that organization as much as him too exactly so now for our conversation with tom loosemore This was a real thrill. Tom's always been someone whose work has consistently been on my radar, but whom I have not found the opportunity to connect to. In this interview, we talk about where to start with digital transformation, culture change and building cross-functional teams. We also cover his work with GDS and the book Digital Transformation at Scale. And as Zoe said, to win a copy, please go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, which is coming in 2022. And we'll again, we'll share links to this in the show notes and we'll pick one winner at random before we wrap up for the year. Anyway, here's Tom. We are very excited to welcome Tom Loosemore to start at the top today. Tom wrote the UK's first government digital strategy and served as the GDS's deputy director for five years. He led the early development of gov.uk. Outside government, Tom has also worked as the director of digital strategy at the cooperative group, as digital strategy lead at Ofcom, and was responsible for shaping the BBC's internet strategy between 2001 and 2007. He is a non-executive director of the UK Hydrographic Office and co-author of Digital Transformation at Scale, Why the Strategy is Delivering. And we're going to be talking about the book today as well. Tom, welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. We're really happy to have you here because you're very much someone who anyone working in digital, whether it's in the public, private or third sector, will undoubtedly have heard of you and also what public digital do at some point. And you've clearly had this really exciting, very stellar career. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about some of the highlights from your career in digital and the main things that you've learned along the way? Well, highlights. There are lots of lowlights as well. And in some ways, the lowlights are lowlights for, are also for me good. more <laughs> more, more interesting and <laughs> lots lots of learning opportunities. I mean, first thing I say is, I think I now look back and think how incredibly lucky I was with the timing of, of being born when I was, uh, and actually sort of starting my career just as the internet was was really starting to impinge on people's lives, sort of in the mid nineties. And I started out actually right uh, as a journalist working for Wired magazine, which is the biggest luck piece of luck ever but I was lucky enough to sort of really get quite deeply enmeshed in that very west coast US slightly libertarian culture of the early internet flaws and all and uh, that was a real learning experience for me this really is going to change the world these are in some ways a bunch of crazy libertarian hippies and some of them were and still are but that sense of the scale of the change of the digital revolution, I was very lucky that I, I really learned that early and that's never left me. And so the, the fact that this is not going to go away, it's only going to get bigger and more impactful in people's lives. I, I learned that a while. I also learned that I'm a terrible writer, so I should stop being a journalist, <laughs> which is a very important lesson to learn what you rubbish at. 
despite my self-image, I'm a terrible writer. So I then I spent quite a bit of time at the BBC helping helping launch sort of the first BBC Sport websites in the sort of late 90s. And then helping quite a lot of work at the BBC. I was at the BBC for sort of six or seven years. The, the latter part of that, really trying to help develop their, their sort of internet strategy and, and the precursors to iPlayer and creating the strategic uh, shift that I felt was necessary in the BBC to really you know, recognise that broadcasting is a historical accident technologically. It is, it is a one-to-many technology and the world is moving many-to-many. And so actually for the BBC to continue to thrive, the level of radical change needed was just beyond comprehension for many people there. And if I'm honest, I look back, back at my time there with a strategy hat on and, and I, I know I failed because the BBC hasn't been able to break free from that. And despite the fact that intellectually, even back in sort of the early 2000s, that recognition was intellectually there. BBC is full of super smart people and writing some of these ideas down, you know, we, we need to move well beyond broadcasting as a sort of mental construct for public service in the 21st century. And, the, you know, the likes of Wikipedia are shaping the future of public service, not another television series or another television channel. Even though that was strategy was there, the strategy is not delivery. A strategy doesn't mean rubbish. It doesn't mean anything if it sits on the shelf and turns to dust. So a really harsh lesson learned there. I, I then really applied that when I helped set up the government digital service sort of 2011, which was definitely the sort of a group of us, actually, the point in our career where we had enough scar tissue and enough recognition that there was an opportunity with a new administration in 2010 to do something really radically different uh, along espousing the values and behaviours and mindset of putting the, the needs of citizens first, being humble enough to start small, that teams change the world, setting the right multidisciplinary teams up that you should show what your strategy is delivering, not tell people what your strategy is. The sort of strategy is delivery mantra was really writ large. And I mean, I say learning that sometimes you really have to recognize that there's an amazing opportunity and just go hell for leather. One of my colleagues, Mike Bracken, who is the, who is the chief exec at uh, GDS, he often talked about recognizing that you're in a game of poker in those moments and that you're starting with a pair of twos and just double down every time, double down, double down, double down until at some point you'll lose. But if you've doubled down three or four times along the way, wow, you could have changed a lot. And that definitely felt the case at GDS, keeping pushing, let's be bold. How can we help reform the whole civil service? How can we change the culture more broadly? How can we make it so this is easy to copy so it's not just us? How do we support people all over the country who want to work this way, but we're never going to meet? How do we change some of the levers and constraints around procurement, around funding, around recruitment? All the enablers, that, that sense of doubling down, thinking ever bigger, thinking ever bolder, that quite a startup mindset, actually. But applying that to the public service was really exciting. And I, I owe Mike that level of ambition. I definitely owe Mike Bracken that. Um, that's the thing I learned there was like, have no poverty of ambition in the public sector, just like you wouldn't in a startup. Apply the same frame. And in the last few years, we've last I've worked with a lot of different clients, uh, with with public digital, with my fellow founders from GDS. And I think one of the things I learned there, we were you know discussing this before the podcast, is just actually we work with a lot of private sector clients, a lot of governments around the world, a lot of third sector organisations. Just how self similar many of the underlying problems are in organisations adapting successfully to the internet era, particularly leadership styles, ways of working mindsets when approaching challenges that there's vastly more similarity than difference between sectors and i don't think people in all the different sectors recognize that similarity sometimes i could go on for hours but i'll stop there that's whistle stop tour of my lowlights and highlights it's amazing thank you tom and thank you also for talking about where things perhaps haven't gone as you would have liked them to as much as what you've you've learned because there's no success without some failure along the way i think we we all know that so um thank you for sharing that 
So let's change tack a bit and dig into digital transformation a bit more. And obviously, this is an area where we've seen lots of organisations across all three sectors begin to make some progress during the pandemic, if if not before. Uh, What would your advice be to any organisation who perhaps has started to use digital more during this time, but knows, as you mentioned, double down, they want to double down on it and and really to grow their digital transformation programme? How would you tell them to to take this to the next level? I think the starting point is by really understanding what what the word digital should mean. And and I've got a definition that I like, um, which is that it's, you know, if you can use the word digital, what you're talking about is applying the culture, processes, business models and technologies of the internet era. And you're applying them to respond to people's race expectations. And that order, culture, processes, business models, technologies is very deliberate that you start with culture. And you technology actually is an enabler and comes often further down the list if not last but the way so understanding that this is a much bigger change than applying some new technology to what you've already done it's about a different way of working a different way of solving problems a different way of recognizing the needs of your customers or or the people you serve and that whole kind of lean agile call it what you will digital product mindset where you have a multidisciplinary team understanding what the user need is be that individual or societal And then incrementally, iteratively, humbly learning their way towards where the value lies, accreting value over time, starting really small, really fast, really humble. And with a a team that represents all the different diversity of perspectives that you need to bring to bear. You know, in government, you need the policy people in there as well as the operations people, as well as the digital people. And in the commercial world, you need your commercial function in there too. That sense of there is a new, if you go to the best performing companies in this era, the unit of delivery is the team. You know, digital teams work. And the place I always tell organizations to start, private sector, public sector, whatever, is get that first team working on the right problem, get it focused on a problem that the organization is going to care about. So not something too marginal, but something that, that, that such a team could succeed with. So not something impossible. And then pick the individuals for that team. And if you need to bring in some external skills, do that, but preferably base it on your existing people in your organization and just start, just start. No more strategy, just start and then learn, 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 learn and make it easy to copy once it starts delivering value. I mean, just starting is often the hardest thing for organisations. They like to think far too long before they start and before they start to learn for themselves. What's the leadership requirement there? Then, is you, you, you know, walk into a, an organisation and say, we need to make some change, let's start a team. Ultimately, it's going to come down to whether you're permitted to make that change, whether leadership buy into it. What's the, what's the first sort of the starting point for any leader of a business thinking, well, it's not me that needs to make this change, but I can see a change needs to be made. How do they start to gather that group around them? I mean, it's interesting that the it's got much easier over the past four or five years, that recognition that you alluded to there, that there is another way, that maybe the, the traditional hammer we've been employing to hit this nail isn't maybe the right way to look at this situation. The curiosity of about how the organisations have been working and, and about sort of empowered teams is really rising. And I think the challenge that you often face is if you're in a very hierarchical permission-based organization which many of them still are if you're in the middle of the organization you feel you need permission from the very top before you can you know employ a radically different way of working and his point is to pretend it's not it really is the leadership styles that the, the fellowship and the leadership required to work in this way is really different if you're in a very hierarchical set, setup but that doesn't mean you can't start 
if you're any layer of management until you've got the CEO or the boss to say it's okay. You have to take a bit of a risk sometimes, but finding the right context, the right problem to set a team up, and maybe that team's only got three people on, and it's a really small problem that only you really are going to be able to care about. Have the confidence to start and be brave enough to start. And it does require a bit of bravery. And then as a leadership style, once you've had that moment of, okay, I'm going to try and start and do this, your role as a leader is inverted from the traditional, I tell people what to do and I, my job is to come up with the answers. It, re- it really is. And it's it's not lip service to say this whole servant leadership thing is real in that your job is to empower and enable, unblock, help your team succeed in understanding and solving the problem, not to solve the problem yourself. And the trust required the moments of, of doubt required as a leader to do that are challenging. It's actually quite hard for many teams as well because they they'll often want to know what you think the whole team. What does what? But, but yeah, but that's fine. Tom's told us what does he actually think we should do? <laughs> How does he actually think yeah. we should solve this problem? So uh, I mean, and, and you'll often find a, as a leader, it's quite discomforting to trust a team that much and be trusted that much. But when you get over the line, my word, the satisfaction is like nothing else. When I've walked around and I've seen one, two, three teams working in the right way as a leader, oh my word, the pride and energy and sense of fulfillment is like nothing you get when you think you've solved the problem yourself. When you see teams solving problems themselves and you don't know how they're solving them, but you know they're solving them, oh, wow, the the sense of satisfaction is through the roof compared to the traditional leadership uh, style. And do you think that we are sufficiently preparing leaders for that as a society? I know this is a bit of a left field question, but as you were talking now, I was thinking about the education system and business schools and both of those things from where I'm sitting feel like they can churn out quite traditional, quite command and control leaders. So do you think that we are taking sufficient steps as a society and indeed in the workplace to grow that new style of, of, of leadership? I, I think it's really easy to be too negative about this. And certainly with, you know, in, uh, in some of the business schools I've engaged with, you know, we have a relationship with public digital with Harvard Kennedy School. They're all over this, all over it. And, and bluntly, the military have been there for decades, actually. Uh, they're way ahead of the military, mission command. And, and so I think we can beat ourselves up too much. There's definitely some sort of command and control hierarchy based stuff being taught the interesting i think that even the schools and universities you see miles more different courses at university working together on joint problems now than you ever would have done when i was i mean i was a student in your lane nowadays there's a lot more of that how do you work together as a team which is actually coming out as a student nowadays you want i want to know that someone can work together with a diversity of different perspectives and not live in their silo so I, i'm cautiously hopeful i think it, it it's the sort of rhetoric of politics means it's still quite alien at a media level actually uh, but at the sort of what's being taught i'm a bit more com- bit more positive than maybe the your question would have pointed to pleased to hear that well one of the things i've, I've said that there would be a couple of really selfish questions in here because i'm specifically working with a, a client at the moment and one of the things that i've i've got to do this afternoon is spend a couple of hours specifically researching how to approach mindset change in in, in leaders because we've got a, a small group of leaders that we need to talk to about uh, agility agility as an organizational capability and how they adopt it and one or two of them can absolutely see, because they work on a shop floor, for example, how agile process would actually give them a, a, a sort of a much better result if they could get it embedded within, within their team. But I guess the rest of them are still at that point where 
They don't know what they don't know. They've not really seen enough evidence within their organisation to say that this approach will make any change, will work. And they, they've not yet agreed that they need help. So I guess it's that point where you get to where they kind of know that something is, is, is coming or a change needs to approach. They've not seen the evidence and they're not ready yet to admit that they need help. So with that small section of leaders, is there any advice you'd give me to help me with my research this afternoon? What does mindset change actually take just, in that small group of leaders that can't get there yet? I, I, I mean, every group's different. I don't know, don't know where these people are, but, but my instinct says... The learning needed is, is always experiential, not theoretical. So don't start with the theory, start with the experience. And it's going to be very hard in most contexts to start with a full agile multidisciplinary team experience. It's just not possible to do that. You can go and show other people and sort of try and get the sense of buzz. That's a bit harder in a sort of now we're working much more virtually to get that, that sense of buzz working in uh, of what is, well, this feels different this culture so i think go experiential and when you go when you go experiential start with something really small and don't use the word agile <laughs> I, I the place i yeah. usually start is with as a leader setting a team outcomes not solutions and it could be a similar i was with a client yesterday who said yeah i'm just going to set my team the challenge of like choose new biscuits for our meeting because you know i always buy the bourbons and i'm going to say to them i want a happy team with the right biscuits, your problem, <laughs> other than me deciding what the biscuits are. I mean, it's really silly, but starting with deliberately not giving a solution to a, your team that when the team usually expects you to give them a solution and command to go away and do it, even if it very clearly expressing what outcome you want and very clearly expressing that you're not going to tell them what you think the answer is, even though they, even though they know you probably think you know what the answer is that's where i usually start to carry on the analogy around the biscuits there yeah. will be a certain part of that population a certain part of that team that will go well the leader likes bourbon so i'm going to go out and i'm going to buy those because completely you know that's and, that's that's absolutely serving what i know what i've learned behavior within the organization that that's what that leader wants and there will be others that will say well actually you know if you've if you like those then have you tried these you know, and it's that kind of attitude that I think we've talked about it in many different settings, the, the people within organisations that have the ability to just say, look, you know, have you tried just edging towards something different? It's pushing that behaviour just a little bit. We your, your book talks a lot about change agents, and it's something yeah. that's really dear to my heart because I felt like one within the organisation that I was working in. And you can push gently or you can or you can sort of revolutionise, and it's that gentle, gentle easing towards something completely. new that I think is is the key. I completely agree, and I think the recognition you're not going to get everyone going on the journey. You're not going to get all of them going on the same pace. Those that do make the journey, and and it is celebrating the little triumphs, where a little triumphs of leadership and followership. Something here about celebrating good followership, as in it's the example of not buying the Bourbons. Uh, um, uh, but trying something different and, and you know applying the phrase how might we and making heroes of people making little brave steps for the little brave step not the kind of you know triumphant leader victorious at the top of the hill but the little brave thing that meant they had to challenge their norms I mean I, it's, it's I remember when we were at GDS we made a point every week of making a video and it was it was it was often Mike doing it I did it sometimes and it was only five minutes it was like three minutes and all it was was celebrating small triumphs from all over and literally you know we finally worked out how to get the bins emptied more than once a month 
well done, so-and-so. You've solved, you've given us the outcome. Don't know how you did it, but thank you. I mean, literally that level of, of celebrating small triumphs. I think that culture of bureaucratic hacking, meeting small triumph, meeting meeting brave small first steps, and celebrating those rather than the big set piece, you know, big bang moments is, is really important. Mm. Yeah, I was just reflecting then because we had a conversation with Joy Foster, who set up uh, an organisation called Tech Pixies, who retrain women to, to go back into the into the workplace, but also to set up their own organisations. And she, she said something very similar to us, didn't she? That at the end of every day, we t- tend to do with clients that I work with, we do sort of morning stand-ups where we'll send a, a sort of a, an asynchronous message to each other saying, this is what we're working on today and blah, blah, blah. But what we don't do is at the end of the day, do what Joy said, is write three things down that she's learned or three things down that, that have have shaped her day as a little reference to, to sort of you know, what, what have we learned today? What little changes have we made in order to, to move things forward? And that's the bit that I think gets forgotten in the sort of the Completely. rigorous start the day well, not end the day well. I, I mean, that's why I'm such a fan of wheat notes. I'm a huge fan of wheat notes. And the more discursive and chatty, the better. Because if you make them discursive and chatty and you make them pretty much every week, you get those little stories the micro stories the micro i've learned this thank you for x person x for that mm. and and it's that richness of that culture change becoming apparent through the storytelling every week and um i'm a hu- i've become a huge fan of week notes for that reason not the kind of structured there are three sections and you must fill them in but the storytelling of what's changed and what you what was what you learned this week and what you enjoyed this week can we talk about that point a bit more because I think it it links really nicely into something we were discussing today before we began recording about how leaders can create those moments of energy uh, and get people excited about change at a point when frankly a lot of people across all three sectors are are exhausted aren't they at this stage in the pandemic and burnout seems to be a massive issue for for everyone and we all know that we do need to to change culture as we uh, go further on this transformation journey but do you have any advice for leaders where they may know they need to change their organizations need to change but people are, are tired and there's that change fatigue and they're they're exhausted after 18 months of living through a pandemic i mean i, I think there's a, there's a sort of kind-heartedness and a recognition that hopefully most leaders will naturally have but not all do to recognize where we are just like you've just done this is where we are and i'm here too and that's for me as a starting point. And then working with that reality, not saying, ah, yeah, but we're still going to go and change everything, despite the fact you're tired. You know, let's go again. Uh, yeah, maybe not. There's a whole stuff around burnout that I won't go into uh, around as leaders, how you can mirror, how you can model behaviors around your own burnout, you know, your own risk of burnout. I mean, I, I'm always telling stories about my own history of burnout. And, and how what I now do to try and avoid it. And I, I've met some of the most impressive leaders I, I, I work with. They also talk about their own experience of, of how they now manage burnout risk in themselves and model that behavior with others. But I think that the essence of your question in terms of digital transformation is, is actually not to say to say we, we had digital transformation forced on us by the pandemic to a significant degree. And look back at how we've managed to work differently perforce because of remote working, because of the pandemic, what succeeded one of the reasons we're feeling tired is because we've all had to change massively 
<laughs> um, and where did that work and where did that not work? And let's build on where it worked and let's try and take some of the tiredness away by dealing with those areas where it didn't work. But let's let's point to the fact we have changed. And I mean, the, the, the sort of glibness by which, I mean, it's very easy to say, but the glibness about which organizations say, yeah, yeah, we've gone 100% remote, but you know, we've still got all these problems. You go, hang on a minute. <laughs> you run, you know, this department of state, 100% remote overnight. That's a massive triumph, you know, for heaven's sake, find a moment to celebrate that enormous success and recognize what isn't working and reset yourselves having won because you got through the pandemic successfully and let's keep what helped us one and let's lose what's still holding us back. But the tiredness is because you've changed. That's uh, that for me is a, is a message that does feel true and tends to resonate rather than just we're all tired and, Oh God, we've got to go again. Well, you've just gone and hopefully we'll never have to go as hard and as fast as we had to in the last 18 months, but let's build on what work worked and let's intentionally lose what isn't working. Cause a lot isn't working still. And we was just forced on us. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop ranting about that. But. But the, no, but there's there's two things that resonate with that straight away. And one of it, again, before we started speaking, we talked about within most organisations, the reality is that, you know, when we talk about change and transformation and mindset shift and having a growth mindset, being a learning organisation, all of those things that are aspirationally where we want to be, the reality of it is you go in and have those conversations with an organisation. You're really only having conversation with about, I don't know, conservative estimate 20 30 percent of the population that wants to work in in that way and in big organizations you know and i i might be a bit colored by the fact that i work in big uh, traditionally worked in big corporate organizations where there are a lot more people who just want to go in do their job leave not worry about it too much um and not put that investment in so does that kind of turn it on its head does that give us an opportunity to show that 70 percent of people who are less focused on change that actually they have been through that change they have shifted from where they thought they might be working they have adopted some of these tools they have adopted some of these ways of working and that should be an accelerant to businesses to say look grab them while you can because they're a captive audience all of a sudden they get I, I, some of it i think that the first thing to say is that that pattern is common beyond the private sector that, that, that I, I, um of you know some people just want to do the do yeah. what they're told to do i think one of the challenges about that that narrative you're you've just given is that some people are now being told what to do in a virtual setting and measured and having mm. you know are they using their keyboard and if you as an organization put those tools of control and constraint on people who are kind of used to that they're not going to change they may be working remotely but they're still just doing the minimum and you're kind of measuring the minimum out of them uh, and I've seen a bit of that, and I find the whole remote possible remote monitoring thing the most corrosive trend mm. in the workplace. They're just appalling from a number of perspectives, but just really corrosive. Having said that, one of the challenges we, we, that you face is it, the, the challenge you allude to is true: is that in some organisations, a good half the people don't want to, they just want to keep moving the cheese from left to right. Thank you very much. And I'd turn it on its head and say, you've got a positive. You've got a big bunch of people who do want to work differently. And part of the trick is to make it, you know, A, to make it true that when you work in a different way, when you work with an empowered team, it's miles more fun. It's miles more fun. <laughs> it's just, it's like not work anymore at its best. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like fun. And to make that A, true, if you can, and B, if it is true, make sure everyone in the organization knows about how much fun it is. And so what I'm, my real point here is comms, communicating about how teams are working, how it feels to work in a team, 
interviewing people who are working in teams if it's a big organization getting those videos of people going oh my god i never thought i could have this much fun at work or be trusted this much and actually it seems to be okay and i'm enjoying it that the internal the sort of communication overhead on digital transformation the onus on you to celebrate success and storytelling if there's one thing digital transformation is it's great storytelling of what's already working and lots of organizations think oh well i've i've you know, written a manual or i've sent a you know powerpoint out you've barely started on the comms challenge it's a good it's a good third of the challenge if not half in some organizations comms I'm 100% pleased that you said that because that was my role at Grant Thornton. It was the comm side of digital transformation. And it was the bit that, yeah, you, you get excited to get in front of a camera. You say, this is all exciting and this is happening. Um, I mean, and, the, 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 there's, there's a lot in our book about the importance of agile <laughs> comms. But there's a, one of our colleagues who we work with very closely, still work with now, Giles, Giles Turnbull, has just written a book called uh, Agile Communication, which I highly recommend. I have no interest in it. It's his book. But it has a lot of the tactics and techniques you can use. And actually, in our book as well, there's a lot of stories about just how hard you have to work and how creative you must be to, to, mm. to celebrate the successes and make them, make them easy to copy. A little bit of envy and a lot of desire to copy and make that easy. Yeah, and the, the technology is there now for us all to do that, outside or inside of those structures within organisations. The one thing we always found was that you were just sort of going back with the success stories to an internal comms team that was very wedded to the structure of communications in the organisation. And you're going, well, hold on a minute, isn't it, haven't we just put Yammer in? Haven't we just put Teams in? Can't I just go off and do this stuff? You know, the realisation, I remember putting Jive into Grant Thornton, oh, you know, I don't know when Jive was at its peak 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And we put it into to Grant Thornton and the, um, the head of comms at the time went, you mean anyone can say anything at any point to anyone? Yeah. Well, that's not good, is it? No, it's brilliant. And and that's the bit that I think is is sort of all pervasive now, you know, with 365 and everything that people have the ability to do within organisations. Just go off and run with it. Go and I mean, celebrate it, your success and tell your story. I, I think working with comms colleagues to recognise that their mindset often needs to change is that we do a lot of that work. And a lot of comms people now get it. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, they but, do. Now. But there yeah. are some organisations where actually the comms function <laughs> is a, is essentially a lever of command and control from the from the very top. That controlling comms culture that doesn't come from comms; they're just a vehicle for a desire for command and control at the very top. And it's a real symptom for me. If you've got a very very controlling comms function, actually, that's a symptom of a, of a more senior problem. And I, we've definitely worked with some clients where that has been exceptionally difficult to deal with. Uh, and and just it's almost like a force multiplier a great agile comms function it's a, it's a times two times ten of the impact of what you're doing because you can communicate it more broadly and without that it's much harder yeah definitely it's, it's one of those areas of the organization that once that's transformed that can make a, a really big difference can't it and i know what you mean about very corporate style comms teams and actually the the um, really challenging impact it can have on that narrative around culture and change and also not having all the answers as, as well and how that's actually okay as you go through digital transformation. Completely. It's the most powerful words being we don't know yet. That, that in, in many comms cultures, that's just not allowed to not know yet. You know? <laughs> and uh, that, that sense of we're learning uh, together and we don't need all the answers at the start uh, and we can't pretend we do can't pretend we can come up with the answers at the start. That's pretty countercultural to a sort of 90-0 comms function. And, but again, to be more positive, there's generations of agile, uh, of comms professionals now coming through with 
a, a yeah. very different perspective and they understand their role in an agile context uh, really really very well and as you say the tools available to tell stories now at a team level at an individual level are just unparalleled and mm. i mean i've definitely learned the power of the short video uh of, of seeing a culture and sensing that you get from a video and making sure that video is under 90 seconds and the discipline to keep it under 90 seconds uh that's that that's one of the things i've learned over the last four or five years is just how powerful that can be uh, and actually how you can get teams doing that themselves doing their 90 second video and get really quite creative themselves as part of their job as a team is to communicate what they're doing they now you know we can all we've all got cameras now we can do it and I think that leads us very nicely onto uh, the book. And also, I think you mentioned about uh, comms being uh, one of the areas that you talk about in, in the book itself. Um, so can I just begin by asking about that? So with digital transformation at scale, why the strategy is delivery um, about the second edition. Um, and I wondered what, what prompted that? Was it related to some of the digital changes you've seen during the pandemic? It'd be great to hear about where you think things might have changed since the, the first edition. Well, in the first thing, the first thing to say is there's three other authors, not just me. So, I, um, and Andrew Greenway in particular is, has really led on the second edition, one of my colleagues. But the actual genesis, to be truthful, was that we had a Japanese publisher contact us and say, can we have a Japanese translation? Because the Japanese government is about to um, a, a, a embark on quite a significant, well, hopefully a significant digital transformation. Um, but quite rightly, that Japanese publisher said, look, you know, the book is now three or four years old. Can you update it? And we and we and then we thought, oh, hang on, if we're going to update it for the Japanese edition, we might as well do it, a second edition for the UK, for the, for the English language version of the book as well. And there were two real, there were two areas that we focused on uh, sort of moving the book forward, more, making it more contemporary in the, in the second edition. One's very obvious, which is, and COVID, <laughs> the conversation we've just had. Uh, we've written quite a lot. We've worked with a lot of clients, governments, uh, private and public sector organisations through COVID. Uh, I mean, literally dozens of organisations right through the eye of the storm of COVID. And it was a very privileged position to be in. Um, and wow, there's a whole bunch of lessons. And the world is never going to go back to, you know, it is a definitely step change moment. It's not to say all that change has been positive to the point I made earlier. There's stuff in the book about what still needs to work to work on but just recognizing what what's now possible and what what this way of working has enabled the pace and quality of delivering value because the country just needed it you know that week and the only way to do that actually is a small empowered team so there's a forcing function for this way of working of empowered small teams delivering value fast and then and then making the value ever better it was brilliant i mean it was terrible on many levels but for that and lara lens and we talk about that and then um, the second area, which is towards the end of the book, is actually some reflections on, on the UK, and specifically, you know, the, the, the government digital service that we founded. It was founded nearly 10 years ago, and the world moves on. And what's the different role of digital transformation as large organisations go through different stages of maturing? And, and what should the centre do? What should the departments do? What's the different roles? What are the challenges? You need very different leadership styles at different periods in that maturity and having the self-awareness. And, and we were just being reflective on what are the different leadership styles that, that worked and didn't work. You know, for example, I knew that I left at the right time. I know my leadership style would not be suited to working in the centre of UK government today. It's just the wrong flavour of person. But what is the right flavour of person at this point? So we, we talk about that as well. And again, I think a lesson I've learned since leaving government in 2015 is just how similar private and third sector organisations are to government and vice versa. The, the pattern recognition is just off the scale. 
culturally, sort of organizational psychology wise, they're very, very similar. And we should say we um, we've agreed that we're going to give away a copy of the book. Thank you for agreeing to that. So we'll um, announce details of the the competition and how to get your hands on a copy of that. It's up to you whether you sign it or not, Tom. You know, I'm, I'm very sure. happy to sign it. Whether they can read my my writing's a different matter. But I've forgotten how to write <laughs> if it's not on a computer. <laughs> Um, and so talking about, you know, um, analog, um, what's the what's the one thing about this wonderful digital world? And you said you had the, the perfect start. And I think I agree with you, you know, born at the right time, existed with with sort of both pre and, and, and now um, with the Internet. What's the thing, one thing about digital that you wish you'd learned earlier in your career and what would have helped you today? Oh, I, I think the one thing I wish, wish was just show, not tell, just do the thing you know is right rather than trying to win the intellectual argument before you start. It's just to have the bravery to act. And, and I mean, some people talk about seek forgiveness, not permission. I think that's a bit glib. I mean, I've used that phrase myself in the past, but, but it is having the confidence to know that you can show a better way in maybe in a smaller way than would be, you'd think ideal rather than investing the energy in theoretical intellectual arguments about there's a better way, show the better way, show the better outcome rather than win arguments. And I think I spent a big chunk of my career, and I've talked about the BBC, thinking that success was winning intellectual arguments, and actually it's just not. It's show another way, and the results of another way would be the single biggest lesson that I think I've learned. I think that's a perfect note to end on, don't you, Zoe? Perfect. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been brilliant to talk to you today. Uh, and it's been really interesting about your own journey as a leader, as much as what leaders should know about digital transformation. So thank you for being so generous with your insights about both of those areas. Genuinely, thank you. Great questions. I really enjoyed that. Thank you to Tom and thank you for listening to episode six of season four. We'll be back next week with a festive social CEOs themed episode with our guests who will be announcing nearer the time. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers on the series. You can share your plans, ideas and questions with us on Twitter. We're at starts at the top one. That's at starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with the season finale next week. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. See you next week.